0: 1 Samuel chapter 8 and chapter 12. Hear the word of the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles." And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And then the first verse of chapter 12, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We've all had the experience, I think, of wishing for something and then getting it. And then wishing we hadn't gotten it. There's an expression that you hear sometimes that sums up that experience. It goes like this. Be careful what? what you wish for, and then sometimes it's continued with, because you might get it. Be careful what you wish for, because you might get it. And that indicates that oftentimes we don't know what's best for us, even when we long for something. And when we get it, we find out only too late that it, it really wasn't the best for us. That's a good summary of this chapter. Uh, chapter 8, they wished for something, they got it in chapters 9 to 11, And then in chapter 12, they said, oops, we really wish we hadn't done that after all. And so chapter 8 tells us about the wish, and then chapter 12 tells us about their repentance, about that wish, and then next week we'll be looking at 9 to 11 about the fulfillment of that wish. Now, it starts out with Samuel being old, and he had two sons. And he made those sons judges over Israel. Now, when we hear judge, we think of a court. And the judges in Israel sometimes held court and they made judicial decisions. But the judges were normally more like strongmen uh, who had leadership ability that were raised up in, in the nick of time to save the people. So they were often military leaders. They weren't just judicial judges. And so that's really what Samuel was. He was not just a judge, but he was a a leader in Israel as well. And if you go back and look at the time of the judges, we find that they were often military leaders. So here, the judgeship was not a hereditary position. So judgeships were not passed on from the judge to his, uh, his children. But here, Samuel tried to make it a hereditary position, and he tried to pass it on to his sons. And then we have a tragic description of the sons in verse 3. It says, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. This is really the only stain, the only blemish on Samuel's character that we can find. Uh, Samuel is is described as upright and as as following the Lord. and, And here it's even recognized his ways were good ways. But his sons did not walk in his ways. And this immediately reminds us of someone else, doesn't it? Who? Eli. Samuel replaced Eli. And what was Eli's main fault? He didn't control his children. And in fact, it's it's even stronger when it describes Eli's children. It says that they were wicked and they did not know the Lord. But here we have Samuel's kids tragically going the way of Eli's kids and Eli's sons cost Eli and his descendants the priesthood. And here Samuel's sons are walking in similar ways. Now the elders wisely saw that a hereditary judgeship was not going to work precisely because his sons did not walk in his ways. The elders in verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. So this was notorious. Everybody knew this that they did not walk in the ways of Samuel. And so what was their solution? Their solution was, and here's their wish now, appoint for us, a king, to judge us, that is to lead us, to govern us, like all the nations. So there was their request. Now, there is, there is some tension in the Old Testament about the, the institution of the king. Because sometimes the king is celebrated. The Lord delights in the king. And if you go back to Deuteronomy, this very situation is anticipated before the people got into the promised land and God was speaking to the people through Moses. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, here is the word of the Lord through Moses. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say... I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. And then there's some requirements of that king, what he should be like, what he shouldn't be like. He shouldn't be a foreigner. He needs to be one of the sons of Israel. He shouldn't acquire many horses. He shouldn't return to Egypt for horses. He he shouldn't acquire many wives. And it goes on and it talks about the various things that that king should and shouldn't be but it's anticipated that they would have a king. And and it's it's permitted that they would have a king, and the Lord would appoint that king for them. But here we get to Samuel, and we find a different perspective on the kingship. And so there's some, some tension in this question of the kingship, because here we find that first Samuel, and then God consider their request for a king a rejection. Samuel considered it a rejection of him and his leadership, And he had put his sons in leadership, and they come and say, no, your sons, not your sons. We want somebody else. And then uh, the Lord told Samuel that, no, they haven't rejected you. They've actually rejected me. Because Samuel went to the Lord. He prayed in verse 6. and verse 7, God says, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And he said, this is how they've always acted. They've always rejected my kingship. This is this is according to the deeds they've done since they came out of Egypt, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So obey their voice. But he says in verse 9, but warn them. But warn them. Warn them what the king will be like in verse 9. And what we have in verses 10 to 18 uh, is what the king's going to be like. And notice the notice the, the different desire they had and what they're going to get. They wanted a king to give them something. They wanted a king so that they would receive from the king. And then the verb that we find repeated in verses 10 to 18 is what verb? Take. Take. Look at verse, look at verse 11. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. Verse 13, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take, verse 14, the best of your fields and vineyards. Verse 15, he will take the tenth of your grain. Verse 16, he will take your male servants and female servants. Verse 17, he will take the tenth of your flocks, etc. That's what the king will be like. He will charge you. He will cost you. Now, in the end... In the end, the people would cry out because of the heaviness of government. And that wasn't the first or last time that people have cried out because of the heaviness of government. And here they're committing kind of a classical mistake, thinking that government is somehow free. If you have government, that it will just give things to you without requiring things of you. But here we're seeing that the king would actually, in his worst manifestation, would take more than he gives. And that would be what he does. And in the end, verse 18, this is the situation, verse 18. And in that day, when the king takes all these things and doesn't give you the things that you think he should, in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, think about this language. The verb, to cry out. We've heard that before. Do you remember our series uh, in Exodus? The people were being oppressed. In Egypt. And what did they do? They cried out to the Lord and the Lord heard them. And he sent Moses and he delivered them. And then if you read the, the judges, you find that is repeated through the book of Judges. And the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. He sold them in the hands of an oppressor and he oppressed them for this many years. And then the people cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard, and he raised up a deliverer, a judge, and he rescued them from their hands, and the land enjoyed peace for this many years. And then the people did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he sold them into another oppressor, etc. And then the people did what? Cried out. So they cried out, they cried out, they cried out. We're used to this pattern. The people cried out. And what did God do? Patiently with them. He would send a deliverer. He would hear them, and he would rescue them. And here it says, and in that day you will cry out. Because of your king. Because of your king. Wait a minute. We're we're crying out because of oppressors. But now they're crying out because of their own king. Their king would become their own oppressors. And this is not the first or last time that a ruler has become the oppressor of his own people. But they would cry out in that day and the Lord would not hear them. Well, he warned them. He warned them. He said, are you sure? He gave them another chance. And then in verse 19, we find that the people, first it was the elders, and now it's all the people. This is, the, this is the, the voice of the people. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. And then they explained why they wanted a king. We got a little bit of that in verse 5, and now we get more. Three reasons. That we also may be like all the nations. We heard that in verse 5. We want to be like the nations. Two, that our king may judge us, lead us. They'd already had judges, but now they wanted a king to do that. And the third is to go out before us and fight our battles. That's what they wanted from the king. Those three reasons. And then Samuel relayed their words to the Lord. And then the Lord responded in verse 22 and said, Obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then dismissed everybody to to their their places. Now, this is the third time that God has told Samuel, Obey the voice of the people. If you look at verse 7, Obey the voice of the people. Verse 9, Now then, Obey their voice. Verse 22, Obey their voice. Their voice, Something's wrong here, isn't it? Something's wrong. Samuel's the prophet of the Lord. Samuel's the one that delivers the word of the Lord to them. And they should obey his voice. But we read in verse 19, but the people refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. Something is upside down here. Something is backwards. They should obey the voice of Samuel. But Samuel is told, obey their voice voice, instead of listening to the word of the Lord through Samuel, the prophet is now doing their bidding. And if you go over to chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. He did it. He did what the Lord said. He did what the people said. He gave them a king. You'll learn about that first king next week in chapters 9 to 11. But what we have in chapter 12 helps us understand chapter 8 because here we have Samuel's farewell speech, farewell speech, and in this farewell speech, he is he's saying goodbye. He doesn't actually leave completely. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and then also 1 Samuel chapter 12. And uh, here we have Samuel giving a Samuel who was judging Israel. He's been rejected by the people as the leader. And now he is is giving his farewell speech. And I'm just going to summarize chapter 12. First of all, he asked the people to accuse him of any wrongdoing. He says, bear witness against me. Have I oppressed you in any way? Have I taken anything from you? What would the new king do? The king would take from them, and Samuel is now saying, have I taken anything from you? Do I have anything that is yours? He's basically saying, search me, search my house. Do I have anything that is yours? Testify against me. And they say, no, nothing. You have not taken anything from us. Verse 4, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's Hand. They say the Lord is witness. So that's the first thing he does. He clears his name of any wrongdoing. And then, after that, he summarized the history of God's dealings with Israel and Israel's dealings with God. He summarized God's faithfulness to Israel and the people's unfaithfulness towards God. In verses 6 to 12 of chapter 12, Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron, brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. He's basically telling them about their redemption. He's telling them about their their salvation from Egypt. And then he talks about the Egyptians oppressing them. And then verse 8 says, And when your fathers cried out, there's that again, cried out to the Lord, he heard them and he brought them out of Egypt. And then verse 9, there's the turn. But they forgot the Lord their God. He sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, into the hands of the Philistines, et cetera, et cetera. And then God raised up judges. In verse 11, he raised up Jeroboam, Barak, uh, Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hands of your enemies. And now we get to the present, he says, or the, the, the recent past, verse 12. When you saw that Nahash, the king of Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord, your God, was king. Now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And then he called them to obey the Lord with a king or without a king. They should obey the Lord. Verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him, obey his voice, not rebel against the command of the Lord. If both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But then he says, if not, it will not go well For you or for your king. And then finally, he gave them a sign of displeasure um, in verses 16 to 18. He says to them, Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called on the Lord. The Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Does that sound familiar? He sent thunder last week, didn't he? Do you remember last week there was a great battle with the Philistines? And the Lord sent thunder, but against whom? Against the Philistines. And now he's sending thunder against his own people. Now, finally... The people say, Oh no. Finally, belatedly, they got what they wished for, and finally they say, Oh no, we really messed up here. In verse 19, and all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And then Samuel comforted them. He said, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And then he says in verse 21, look at this. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Let me read that again. That's really good advice, isn't it? Not only to them, but to us as well do not turn aside. Okay, you've done this, you've asked for a king, you've messed up, but, but, but you still have an opportunity here. You still have an opportunity, but do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. That's what empty things are. They are empty. And so don't go after empty things. That's, that's good advice to us, isn't it? That's a warning to us. With our time, with our talents, with our efforts, with our investments, whatever we might be doing with our life, we can ask ourselves a question. Is this an empty thing that does not profit or deliver? Or is this something of value into which I can invest myself? Don't turn aside from empty things that cannot profit or deliver. And then he reminded them of God's faithfulness to his covenant blessings and curses. His blessing in verse 22 for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make, for you a pe- make you a people for himself. And then the covenant curses in verse 24. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And then we have the conclusion. Um, in, in verse 23, kind of the the bowing out of of uh, Samuel. He's not going to disappear from this book, but he's bowing out from one of his three roles. Samuel's interesting because he had multiple roles. He was trained as a priest under Eli, a priest who intercedes before the Lord and who offers sacrifices to the Lord. Then he was called by God as a prophet to declare the word of the Lord to the people. And he was also named by God as a judge, as a ruler, as a leader. And what he's doing here, he's saying, you have rejected me from one of these three roles. But far be it from me to cease operating in my other two. Look at verse 23. First in verse, verse 19, they say, pray for your servants. And then verse 23 Samuel says this, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. That's the job of a priest. He says, I, I'm called to intercede for you. I will continue to pray for you. I will continue as a priest interceding for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. That's the job of a prophet. So he's continuing in his priestly role. He's continuing in his prophetic role. But he's saying, in terms of the judgeship, you have your king now, and I'm bowing out. I'm no longer ruler over you. Now, this tension that I noticed at the beginning of the sermon about the kingship, two perspectives on kingship. Kingship is permitted. Kingship, you're you're allowed to have a king just like all the other nations, Deuteronomy 17. And then here in 1 Samuel, kingship is wicked. You shouldn't have asked for a king. You've rejected the Lord as your king. These two perspectives on kingship have led to a great body of literature um, and uh, debates on what, what was wrong. What was wrong with their asking for a king? And there are different ideas about this, but there are a couple of things in the text that I think are, are fairly clear. Part of the problem was their desire to be like the other nations. That's repeated. That's repeated. They said, we want a king so that we can be just like the other nations. Now, it's one thing to have a king like the other nations have. It's another thing to want to be like the other nations. And that was always a temptation for Israel. Israel was called to be different from the other nations. That was part of their calling from God, to be distinct, to be holy, to be separate, to be set apart. And here they want to be just like all the other nations. And that was not just a temptation for Israel. That's a temptation for Christians as well, to want to fit in. want to not stick out very much, not be too odd, not be too strange, but just kind of go with the flow and fit in, to be like all the other people around us, not make too many waves. This is a perennial temptation for the people of God, to give up our sanctity, that is our separateness, our differentness to which we're called, and just to want to fit in and blend in with the world. But even more basic than that, It seems to be a matter of trust. There seems to be a problem of trust here. And we can see that when we compare today's text with last week's text. In chapter 7 that Robbie preached last week, you remember what happened? There was a time of repentance. There was a time of returning to the Lord. The Lord did battle for his people in exile, and then he came back to his people, and they set up a stone to remember his his victory. And, and there was another battle, though. I'm sorry, the, the battle was first with the Philistines in verse 7, and they had just been slaughtered by the Philistines in the chapters before. And then in verse 7, now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines and the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb, offered a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried out, there's the verb again, cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord, here we have it, thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Samuel set up a stone, set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. What is this an example of? Trusting the Lord. The Philistines are coming again. Instead of improvising like they did when they got the, the Ark of the Covenant out to try to win with some sort of magic powers of the Ark. They trusted the Lord and the Lord delivered them. And then in the very next chapter, next chapter, they're saying, we need a king. Who's going to fight for us if we don't have a king? What? The Lord just fought for you in the last chapter. Go back and remember what just happened. The Lord fought for you. And so it looks like most basically, it's a lack of trust in the Lord and trusting in a human institution that the Lord permits And even sets up for them. But but it's a lack of trust in the Lord. And we can apply this principle. There are many things that are permitted in the Christian life. Permitted. It's fine to have these things. But the question is, where's our trust? What are we trusting in? It's fine to have an income. We need to have incomes. But we ought not to trust in our income. It's fine to have investments. But we ought not to trust in our investments it's fine to have academic credentials but we ought not to trust in our academic credentials it's fine to have a good family name but we ought not to trust in our family name it's permitted to have political affiliations and even support this candidate or that but we ought not to trust in these political affiliations or in those candidates whom we support it's it's fine to have bank accounts It's fine to have intellectual ability. It's fine to have health and strength. These are all good things. These are permitted to Christians, but we ought not to trust in these things. It's fine to be happy with our national identity, uh, to have beauty, to have skills, to have abilities, whatever these things might be. These are permitted to Christians, but not to be trusted in. Why? What happens to all these things that I have just mentioned? All of them fade away. All of them disappear. All of them, sooner or later, will fail us. And if our trust is in those, our trust is misplaced. They're permitted to us. We may enjoy them, but we must not trust in them because, and here's the, here's the heart of the matter. While these may permitted, don't trust in them because all will fail. If we have turned them into an idol, then we will be left with nothing. If we have made them the focus of our trust, then we have rejected the Lord as our king, and we have trusted in idols. So now, coming back to this tension we find in the Old Testament about this institution, this institution that God set up, this institution that God permitted for his people, um, we, we find the tension in this institution and, in fact, in all the institutions of the Old Testament, all of them, there is this tension with all of them. Sometimes they seem to be absolutely necessary. They seem to be at the heart of what God is doing with Israel. And then with the, the, the flick of the a hand, God can send them away as if they're not necessary at all. He did that with the ark. Do you remember? The ark at the center of Israel's religious life. And then he sends it over to the Philistines. The land, the land is so important to Israel. And then he can take it away. And he can give it to other nations. The king, Eli, Samuel, the judges, the temple, the tabernacle, the ark, uh, the Jerusalem itself. All of these sometimes seem to be so important. And then he can just wipe them away. Now, why is that? Why Why this tension with all these institutions that God himself either permitted or set up? It's because they're temporary. They were temporary and they were provisional. And they're pointing forward. They, they weren't to be permanent. They were pointing forward to, to a fulfillment, a greater fulfillment, a, a, a permanent fulfillment. And that permanent fulfillment is Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of all these things, of the judges, of the kings, of the prophets, of the temple, of the tabernacle, of the ark, of all these things that God was preparing for generation after generation. Now, Samuel's very interesting because... Samuel comes closest along with Moses to doing something that nobody could do. He comes closest to fulfilling to having the three offices of the Old Testament. Moses came close as an intercessor, a priest, as a declarer of the word of the Lord, a prophet, and as a ruler, a king, but he wasn't called a king. The same with Samuel. He was he was prophet, he was priest, and he was proto-king, sort of king, kind of king. They these two men came close to, offering, uh, to fulfilling the three offices. But um, he had to give way before the king. He had to give way. And eventually, all of them had to give way before the coming king, King Jesus, the one who can profit, the one who can deliver. And so what's the, what's the message? Put your trust in him, the one who can profit, the one who can deliver. And turn aside from empty things. Trust in the one, the only one, who can deliver you. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for all the things that you permit to us. And we pray that you would keep us from turning them into idols. We thank you for all the things we enjoy as Christians and all the liberty that we have. And we pray, O God, that you would protect our hearts from trusting in them because we know that all the good things that we enjoy in this life, they will one day fade, they will one day fail. And we pray, O God, that you would enable us to turn away from empty things, to turn away from unprofitable things, and to put our trust in the one who can profit and who can deliver. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.